Welcome everyone to the Conservative Environment Network's first webinar. The topic is building back clean air. Lockdown has drastically reduced transport emissions as people have stayed home to protect the NHS and this has led to noticeably cleaner air with quantifiable health benefits including reports of improved outcomes for those who have suffered from COVID and related respiratory issues. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps recently tweeted that cycling levels have increased by around 70% compared to early March, as many of us, including myself, have dusted off our bikes to use during daily exercise outings. And many of us have been walking as well, with or without our dogs, um, to visit local green spaces and get some fresh air. But we know that this improvement in air quality during lockdown has come alongside a severe and unsustainable drop in economic activity. So the challenge now is to get Britain moving again, but using more sustainable forms of transport. And long term, there is an opportunity for us now to change the way that we travel as we come out of lockdown, particularly how we get to work and lock in the cleaner air and the better health comes that it brings. So we've got um, three of our great panellists here, hopefully Rachel McLean, the Minister, will be able to join us a little bit later. But first, can I welcome SEN MP Selene Saxby to give her views. Um, Selene is the MP for North Devon and the chair of the APBG on walking and cycling. Selene. So as the MP for North Devon um, and a former fitness instructor, so for 20 years of my life I've been a fitness instructor and um, very passionate about actually staying active. So I've just recently taken on the co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group on cycling walking. And for me, what I was going to speak about was the difference between sort of harnessing in this change in behaviour between a city environment and the more market town environment and rural environment where I am in North Devon. So while I'm up in Westminster, for those of you who are London-based, um, you can't help but notice that the city has gone blue. There are blue cycling lanes everywhere. On my walk to work this morning, a blue line has appeared on Westminster Bridge to make sure I walk on the right side. Um, and that steps are being taken and that budget is being well spent to ensure that we can actively travel to work far more easily. Um, and so I'll share with you a tale from North Devon. I've um, contacted my county council um, to ask what were the plans for um, the active travel in North Devon to harness the increased cycling and walking to work that we had. Um, and to be told that we had a great plan, we were going to close the main bridge into the town. Those are very innovative for North Devon and I was all in favour of it. Um, and ultimately that led to it not happening. So although our local councils have declared a climate emergency, it was a bold step too far for the people of North Devon, um, and in particular, actually, their councillors. And I think one of the things for me coming out of this is that if we really want to drive change, we need to look at our council structures and our planning structures and how we actually put these things forward. Because what actually happened um, in North Devon was my support triggered the opposition to decide that they would then withdraw their support for the project. So despite it being a um, Lib Dem council who had backed it before I did, they withdrew their support after I backed it. So um, I'm still fighting to get somewhere to cycling into Barnstable Town Centre, which at the moment you can't do safely. Um, but we do need to find a way, I think, as a government to enable innovative plans to be trialled at this time, um, to not be shouted down by loud voices on social media, um, and to ensure that we can trial these things. So I think my experience in North Devon compared to my experience up here in Westminster, is up here things are happening where we actually have a probably a big enough council structure to actually deliver real change real quick, actually. Whereas in North Devon, where we have multiple layers of council, we have a town council, a district council, a county council, all of which are different flavours with different agendas. 
um, is not conducive to getting these things done. And that if we do want to build back better and greener, we need to perhaps push a bit harder from the centre to actually ensure our councils can deliver what I genuinely believe people would like to see. Um, next up, we um, have Send Councillor Law around. Um, as Selene's already said, from the provision of cycling infrastructure, the layout of roads to planning decisions and bus policies, local authorities play a key role in making our communities cleaner, greener and healthier places to live. So uh, Laura Rand is a councillor in Kensington and Chelsea, and I'll hand over her now to make her remarks. Thanks, Megan. Um, yes, I mean, Selene is right. I mean, obviously the councils, um, there's quite a lot of pressure on the councils to uh, take action quickly, according to the government's advice. Um, I'm conscious that I'm giving a predominantly very urban uh, perspective here, but uh, some, you know, many of the streets you're probably seeing and referring to is actually falls under TFL. So there is the sort of um, uh, tension there between TFL and, and council um, at, at times. Um, so just to just to flag that. I mean, um, I found locally, and I think all my council colleagues will agree, um, it can be a very controversial topic. And I think, as Boris Johnson once said nothing gets voters more uh, agitated, I can't remember the word he used, uh, other, besides Brexit and uh, cycling paths. And uh, I think he, he, he's proven to have a bit of a point where I live. Um, and uh, actually, I think COVID-19 um, is providing a real opportunity uh, to move uh, past this. Um, and I have to say, I think the government's guidelines have been very positive and even Grant Sharp, Sharp saying that clean air should be as big as a priority for us in the 21st century as clean water was to the Victorians in the 19th, I think is a very strong and positive and welcome statement. And also, as I alluded to earlier, um, basically asking councils to and TFL and others to make provisions uh, in order to get uh, people back to work and, and to places once they're able to when they can't take the tube and so um, what we've seen uh, locally is actually I think there's been a lot more open-mindedness from residents who in the past have been very much opposed to cycling lanes who are now um, a bit more open to it and as a result uh, in Kensington we are um, putting a, a cycling lane in High Street Kensington which had very positive feedback from resident associations. So that's a really welcome, welcome shift. Um, some other things that we've done, and I can go into this in a bit more detail later, Megan, is making the whole borough a 20 mile per hour zone. Um, we've speeding up construction of planned cycleways and doing a lot more to encourage schools to provide school streets and uh, making it sort of clean area during drop-off and, and uh, drop-offs and pickups um, and introducing low traffic uh, neighborhoods and also electric vehicles um, and charging points is something we are uh, we have a very good uh, and proud track record actually in RBKC. Next um, we have Rachel McLean who is a SEN alumna and um, the MP for Redditch and also the Minister for Transport Decarbonisation. In March the Department of Transport published its Transport Decarbonisation Plan which is a really ambitious strategy to support modal shift and it sets the ambition for public transport and active travel 
to be the natural first choice for our daily activities. That's really exciting. So over to you, Rachel. Hi, thank you, Megan, and nice to see everybody again uh, from the SEND group, and thanks for inviting me along. It is absolutely a pleasure to be talking tonight to, to old friends who have involved in this group, and you've done so much to push this agenda on, and also provide support from within Parliament and from MPs, so I'm incredibly grateful for that. You're right that we have now got this focus. We were elected on a manifesto to reach net zero. We're all very clear about that. The government has, I think, shifted incredibly fast along, along this road. We legislated for net zero, zero in the last parliament, but what we didn't really have was a clear strategy for how we were actually going to reach it in terms of transport, which, as you know, is one of the biggest emitters of uh, greenhouse gases and also uh, toxic air. So in the very first few weeks, actually, of my time as a minister, we did release the transport decarbonisation plan, even though our focus was very much on the public transport system and the response to COVID-19, we still felt it was important that we sent the message out really clearly that we hadn't lost sight of our long-term goals. And that was very broadly welcomed by, I think, the, the general public and also stakeholders in this space. Um, it, it, it very much sets out our intention at a very high level to shift people out of cars and onto public transport and onto more active forms of transport. And I think it's, it's important because it's the first time that the, that the department has actually looked across the whole of the transport system. And what I've discovered that when you go into the Department for Transport, you have sort of one whole floor for buses, and another whole floor for aviation, another bit for maritime, and it's like they're separate continents, they barely speak to each other. But we, we obviously have to have this, what they call a cross-modal approach. We have to get these different bits working together because a lot of the solutions will come from the, ener from the energy generation that we use, um, from the behaviour changes, and also from some of the things that you're talking about, Laura, about the infrastructure locally to actually enable people on a very practical level to get out of their cars and substitute uh, cycling, walking, or, or e-scooters, or whatever it might be, for getting in a, an ICE, uh, internal combustion engine car. So that's very exciting. We're doing a ton of work on that. You, you'll have heard Grant obviously talk about the Jet Zero Council, uh, which is specifically focused on aviation. And we will also be announcing a um, Net Zero, um, sorry, I think we're going to call it Transport Zero. Actually, I'm not sure what we're going to call it, but we're going to have a similar body uh, that we're setting up at a very with very high level people to actually look at the transport plan in in, a, in entirety so that we're bringing in all those voices we're bringing in the voices of academia of business and people who are you know manufacturing cars and who are going to be affected by the work so that's very exciting we're obviously also bringing forward the date where we're going to um, phase out new petrol engine vehicles and the, that work is also actively going on that consultation is still open it will close quite soon in a few weeks time and we'll be looking to push forward with some of that. And again, on the back of that, we've all seen the announcements in the recent budget for the charging infrastructure. And uh, you know, we're actively encouraging councils, obviously, to, to make use of that money and make sure that the charge points are available all across the country, not just in Kensington and Chelsea, but in other bits of the country, um, Devon, Bellian, and for basically, we, we want them everywhere. We want them to be as easy to use as petrol pumps. And I, I just, Finally, I'll say a bit about what we're doing on e-scooters. That's really exciting. That should You should be hearing that probably next week, we hope. We're just trying to tee everything up to get that announced because 
you know, we, we know that the e-scooters are very popular in other countries. People have been clamoring for us to, to sort of use them here. They make such a lot of sense for very short journeys. I mean, we know most journeys actually in this country are under, I think, three miles. Uh, they are those local journeys, popping to the shops, to see friends, to go to the park. And if we can actually shift people out of cars for those journeys and onto e-scooters, it, you know, it could really transform what we're doing in, the, in this country. But the, re the logic for having the trials rather than just rolling them out in a big bang is because we do want to take account of some of the issues around street clutter, um, where are they going to go, how they're going to uh, cooperate well with cyclists and other users of the road. So we want to get a very robust set of evidence, not only for that, but also to track how does it really uh, stimulate modal shift. So are people actually getting out of their cars into scooters or are they using them in a slightly different way? So all the trials will be based on the requirement that the local authorities and operators will have to provide that data to us so that we can analyze it and make the best policy choices for the future. So I'm happy to take any questions as we go through the session. Um, those are the sort of headline bits. Great, thanks so much, Rachel. We did have a question on e-scooters, so that's good. You've already uh, answered that one. <laughs> Oh, excellent. <laughs> and last but not least, um, we have uh, our resident expert with a very impressive CV, uh, Nicholas Boyd-Smith, who I've put on the spot now, um, the founding director of Create Streets, which is a social enterprise and research institute championing beautiful, green and dense streets, a member of the Historic England Commission, a senior research fellow at the University of Buckingham and much more. Uh, Nicholas, over to you. Uh, thank you very much. That's a good way to disappoint everyone by introducing me as a resident expert. I'm, I'm afraid it can be very disappointing in that context. Um, I was just going to say uh, four or five quick things. One, I was going to try and set out uh, a vision for the future, because I think the zeitgeist has changed and is changing quite fast. It's changing at different rates in different places, but it's moving. Um, secondly, was just to say um, a bit about, I think, where the central government can play a role and actually focusing less on the movement bit, which the minister's talked about very uh, effectively, perhaps a little bit more about street design and the regreening and the beautifying of our, uh, of our streets and settlements, because that is actually a crucial part of this virtuous circle we need to create. And then perhaps say a little bit about what local uh, government and designers and developers can do. And then perhaps specifically to pull out a few themes, a lot actually reflecting some of the work we're currently doing, um, because we work with councils and landowners and developers and community groups up and down the country and including abroad now, uh, you know, in specific response to, to COVID-19 because, you know, that never let a crisis go to waste. There's an astonishing opportunity now to actually increase the prosperity of, of many people and support life, lives that are, 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 are cleaner and greener. So first thing, um, as a couple of you may know, I, I spent a lot of last year uh, co-chairing alongside the late uh, Roger Scruton, the, the government's Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission. I think it'd be fair to say when it was set up, it met with a, a howl of rather raucous criticism uh, from many of the professions and many of the people working in design and development. Uh, and I think it'd also be fair to say that when we reported to the government on the 30th of January, it was met with near universal and in some cases passionate support from almost everyone. I think the only people who didn't like it were some very trendy left-wing architectural historians and sort of critics and some of the volume house builders and i'm very happy with that there's a sort of an alliance of people who weren't happy with it and i think one of the reasons was um and this is his, his, here's the vision thing is actually i think we effectively sketched out a vision for the future of our towns and villages and cities and suburban centers which is just profoundly more humane by a series of mistakes over the last 60 years i mean above all mistaking the freedom that the motor car gave the 1930s rural road with how we should run our town centres. 
by you know, a series of mistakes, we've ended up dehumanizing the lives we lead on a quotidian basis. And once you start being able to vision a life where you can walk around more easily, uh, are surrounded by more beautiful streets, and anyone who experiences that, and by the way, it's where many of us go on holiday, uh, immediately prefers it. So I think, and we talked in the report, and I, you know, it's not, I'm not selling it, so I'm happy to try and pitch it at you. Here it is, you can download it. This is one of the few hard copies, and I'm keeping it. Um, but we talked about a virtuous circle of place and prosperity. And we know, we create streets now from our research, that the places where people are happier and more connected and know more of their neighbours and tend to perform in more pro-social ways are also worth more. And people also live there for longer. And the air, when you adjust for centrality in large scale of cities, which is quite a difficult adjustment to make, also tends to be cleaner. So we can create a virtuous circle of prosperity and the zeitgeist has changed and is changing and COVID-19 is changing it faster. That's my first point. My second point is this isn't just about movement and you know, the minister quite rightly talked about movement because it is partly about that. It is also about how we design our streets and it is also about um, uh, re-greening uh, the number of street trees you know, in, in our towns and places. Let me just give you one example. I could give you dozens of others and I apologise to any urban designers on the call because they'll know this. If you think of the, uh, the radius junction of any junction in any suburb or town, by which I mean you, know, you go from street A to, to street B, I hope you can envisage that. If it's round and curving like that, it's been carefully designed so a car doesn't have to decelerate much. That's not a good place to walk. And people on the whole will walk less in that type of place. And places where people don't want to walk, people will drive more. If you have a tighter junction like that, as we used to design until about you know, 60 years ago, um, the cars will have to slow down. And it's a place you're less likely to drive. It's a place in which, if you like, the, the walker or the pedestrian or the cyclist or the e-scooter, uh, if you like, is, is in charge and the car is the guest. And by just gently sending signals in the way we design our new settlements and even more crucially, in the way we manage our historic ones, and by historic, I just mean anything that currently exists, is incredibly important part of this. It is not just going to be done through forcing people into this or forcing people into that. It's going to be about making decisions in daily existence uh, more agreeable one way or other. So there's a key, key thing that needs to be done. And I think I'd now go, go further than I, I think we did in, in January. Um, there's some excellent guidance manual for streets one or two that was done about 15 years ago. And this isn't a part of political thing, um, which, you know, are, are great stuff. And they need to be updated to include things like e-scooters. And I think they probably need, need to be turned into policy, not just guidance. And that at a stroke would make it easier uh, for councils and indeed developers and designers to create and manage places that are more humane and easier to walk in and harder to drive at speed in, not harder necessarily to drive in. Um, there's also changes that can be made to the national planning policy framework that would encourage the re-greening of our towns and cities. So there's some sort of national policy stuff that needs to happen. Um, but there's then actually, both at the national level and at the council level, there are, you know, there are actions that need to be taken uh, the planting of street trees, uh, encouraging through local planning authorities, what we call urban orchards. Um, we've got, we're working with a couple of housing associations and developers who are now aspiring to plant a fruit tree with every house that they build. Um, uh, Regreening of streets and squares. So there's a whole programme of activity there. And as, as I'm sure you will know, street trees are, I mean, it is astonishing how strong the evidence is on street trees. They are in multiple studies across multiple countries. They're associated with cleaner air. They're associated with traffic driving more slowly. They're associated with healthier residents. They're associated with, uh, with fewer accidents. Um, now, there's, you can have big arguments about correlation and causation. And ultimately, you know, I mean, it's both is the short answer. But, you know, but, um, so there's a, there's a whole realm of activity there that is part of cleaning our, our, our air. And then my final point, and I promise I've only got another two hours to go. Um, my final point is just on the, on the response to COVID-19. Um, 
Yes. So look, I mean, we need to distinguish here between getting from A to B and then being inside a town or village or, or, or urban core. So there's a, a clear role now for pop-up bike lanes to get between places. Um, that's happening. Um, from based on the work we're doing, bluntly, it needs. To, and, this, and this isn't a super. This will sound like a superficial comment, but it isn't a superficial comment. It's a serious comment. How you do it really matters. Because what we're seeing in quite a few places we're working is that what councils are doing, and I understand why the highways officials say they should do this, is they're putting up big crash barriers and big gates and grates and flashing red and orange. And what that says psychologically to people is this is a dangerous place. Be careful here. And what it says to drivers is, don't worry, we've cordoned off the pedestrians so you can drive faster. And people do drive faster when pedestrians are cordoned off. When you don't cordon off pedestrians, cars drive slower. Because most of us, all of us, don't want to kill people. So there's a real danger that what we're currently doing in response to good policy on the ground is actually going to make our streets less attractive and things in which people drive faster and actually walk less in, or at any rate, don't walk more you know, in the way we would wish to. So how we do it really matters. What we're suggesting to people we're working with is, look, don't put up huge, great, impermeable crash barriers, put up planters, you know, create, create green breaks and make sure that it's permeable so you can actually still cross the road. And this type of stuff really matters. This is, again, this is not a superficial point. This will matter in people's actual usage of streets. Um, so there's one thing. I'm, I'm delighted to hear the work on, on e-scooters. I would commend more of that. We're, with great respect, we, you know, we're, we're so far behind the curve on this. And you know, e-scooters need to become part of the new normal as we come out of lockdown. This is a point of change. As Parliament showed as we moved into lockdown, you know, Parliament can move you know, bloody fast when it wants to. And this is an area where we need to move bloody fast. Because, Excuse my language, because you know, the opportunity is now and we need to seize it. Um, and there's lots of other stuff linked to that, which I won't go into detail about supporting um, uh, parking for, high, uh, for, for bicycles and for, for e-scooters. Uh, just a, two more points linked to that. Uh, the, the nature of our high streets is going to really matter. So there's a, we are entering a period of, you know, in all our lifetimes, you know, unprecedented insecurity and lack of clarity about who is going to be using high streets in the immediate and medium term future. We just don't know. How many shops are going to go out of business? To what degree local streets are going to revive with perhaps people commuting into town centres less? No, no one knows. Anyone who says they know is making it up. Um, but what we do know is in periods of flux, you've got to give landowners some degree of flexibility. So I think there's a real case now, and I'm pleased to see the government following ours and other people's advice on, on this, for moving to more flexible use classes within high streets and to allow it to be easier for people to use pavements for vending or, or, or streets when they're wide enough. And there's some, there's some good stuff already happening on that. But this will matter, and it will matter to air quality, because if we can make high, local high streets revive and people walk to them and use them, and not feel they need to get in the car to drive to places all the time, that will lead to, uh, to cleaner air. And then my final, very, very final point is, and it links back to what I perhaps was saying about crash barriers, is we need to respond to COVID in the way we design our streets with a pilot and test approach, not a safety first approach. And I don't mean we shouldn't worry about safety, but if we take it in the, and we're seeing this in a couple of places, you know, we need to highways engineer the hell out of everything. Uh, and we must only do it when we're absolutely certain, you know, no one could sort of, you know, prick their nails on this. We won't do much. And particularly, if, sadly, as the example Slane was giving, it becomes politicised, which was a totally sad story to hear. Um, but if we, uh, you know, crowdsource where people want to see changes. We, we ran, um, we've got an online tool for this, but others do as well. We crowdsourced changes people wanted to see to lead city centre a couple of weeks ago. On a marketing budget of near zero, we picked up nearly a thousand suggestions in about four days flat. There's enormous pent up desire to see 
better places, particularly when it links to things like schools and children. There's so much desire for this and it's popping up everywhere. You need, you, dear councillors, any councillors on the call, you need to find ways to, to, to gather that information and that passion, that energy, and then trial it. You know, trial it on a Sunday, trial it on a Monday, trial it whatever day is appropriate for the place. If it doesn't work, stop it. But just trial lots of things in rehumanizing how we use our streets and then find the ones that work. So, you know, we need to see the future and live it so that we can move to that. And now I will be quiet. Thank you very much. So now we're going on to, we have quite a lot of pre-submitted questions, as I said. So um, a lot of them from SEND councillors. So first we had um, two that are very similar, one from councillor Jane McBean from Buckinghamshire and one from councillor Stephen Andrews from the Cotswolds. Um, both interested in how the government can support the creation of cycle areas, both in terms of rural cycle lanes, but also how they could be retrofitted into older, more established, dense towns and areas. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly sceptical about cycle lanes in historic town centres. I think it's more about designing the overall street network so that much more of it, if not all of it, feels like a place where pedestrians and cyclists or e-scooters you know, have the priority. Cars are allowed there, but by raised carriageway, width of carriageway that varies you know they're just forced by design to drive slowly and to feel that they're the guests in the street network once you start putting heavy laid infrastructure in essentially narrow historic streets a it looks horrible but it doesn't really work and you just end up with a mess of all sorts of stuff and people getting confused you, you can see some of that in the you know frankly rather silly cycle lanes in the city of london i'm all for cycling that is not an anti-cycling comment but um so i'm i'm skeptical about cycle lanes as the answer in in town centers um, I think country lanes is actually the hardest of the whole lot. So when you're talking big streets or big roads from A to B, that's quite an easy thing to put in multimodal um, uh, carriageways into and having a proper cycle lane. If you're talking small country lanes, it typically doesn't work. So I think that's the hardest one to crack and there is, there's no neat answer. Um, um, I think from my own experience being in a rural constituency as well, really understand the concerns raised there. And whilst a lot of what went on in North Devon last week was political, I think there's also a need to bring the population with you. And that actually, whilst there are enthusiasts for this in some of our rural market towns, our older population are not going to be cycling up and down Devon's hills anytime soon. And I think we do need to recognise that rural Britain is quite different. Um, and if we want to actually embrace this revolution, we need to bring people with us and not just imposed. Yes, yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, I represent a constituency that's got a new town of Redditch, but then it's got a big sort of hinterland of the country lanes and that, that sort of thing as well. So I'm absolutely alive to that. What, what I wanted to just point to say, to, to let you know, is that in the department, we're doing quite a lot of work on um, people's attitudes and behaviour and how they actually think about their own journeys and how the COVID-19 crisis has changed their plans and how, how has it actually changed their behaviour? Because obviously we all know from our own experience and that of our family of friends, people are working from home, we've all got probably our own opinions about that. But I think what we're interested in from a policy perspective is how sustained are these? How, what would it take to, to sort of lock in a lot of these changes. Obviously, we're, the infrastructure is, is part of it and, and some of the work that we're doing. But how do people really feel? I, 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 you know, I've actually got two psychology degrees, so maybe it's too, too many, I don't know, but I, I don't want to be rude about them. But it, it, I, I do see that the, the way that people think about their behavior and, 
and how that how they travel and those sort of barriers that sometimes are unconscious are really important so we are pushing on with a lot of this work and i think it will be really helpful for us to get a good picture of people's attitudes as we go forward to sort of put our you know government might behind various different uh, investments and innovations that we're making you know there's no point us rolling out e-scooters all over the country if all, all that happens is that we just get a tremendous negative backlash because stuff's gone wrong and people hate it and for the few people that love it everybody else absolutely hates it and it just goes wrong we have a u-turn we do need to consider all of this and, and do it in a holistic way the, the issue of air quality linked to traffic in a serious way might be a few arterial routes but it's essentially you know streets in within towns so if the if exam question we're all talking to here is air quality the game about worrying about cars is uh, is about towns not about the countryside so i'd make actually no case against cars other than they're not very good for you you start cycling if you should other than that i'd say nothing against them in the rural situation there's a very different mm -hmm. series of trade-offs and it was that confusion i think about the role of cars in the town versus the country that you know we as a, we as a society and all other societies made two generations ago and which we're now carefully unraveling mm -hmm. Thanks. I mean, I think my mum's big fan of her e-bike for the very same reason we've mm. spent so long on the hills. Um, and I suppose it's the opportunities from potentially putting out temporary planters to see what residents do think of temporary cycle lanes in the, in the short term before we roll out more permanent measures, as you say. It feeds in quite nicely to my next question, actually, which um, is from another SEND councillor, Nigel Moore from Gloucestershire, who ask mounting concerns about using public transport could negate some of the benefits from modal change during the COVID pandemic. Do the panel members share these concerns? And if so, can they offer any thoughts on how to address this challenge? I don't mind uh, going first. Uh, yes, 100%. It, it doesn't sit well with me at all as the Minister for Transport Decarbonisation and as a minister that's committed to modal shift over the long term be telling people to stay off public transport at all it really it really has been hard I, th I think the public have have got the message and they've responded incredibly well and we're seeing you know good good cooperation with some of the measures such as face coverings which is really welcome what what we are trying to do at the department for transport is make it very clear that this is a, a short-term crisis response piece um, and you know, if we can obviously address some of the issues around the two metre, one metre rule, which we've seen has come in today, this will enable there to be more capacity freed up on the network. And that's what we want to do. We want to get people back onto the public transport network. And, and I think going back to my earlier point, it, even at the height of the crisis, we were still committed to uh, cracking on with our plans for transport decarbonisation over the long term. That's why we announced the, the transport decarbonisation plan. That's why we really pushed on with the, with bringing forward the e-scooter trials because initially we, they were only going to happen in 2021 and they were only going to happen in about four places. And we've pushed for them to happen much earlier and also, I mean, I personally pushed for them not just to be in big cities but to be in towns and rural areas because we need to get the evidence and people outside of, of you know, London and big cities need to have that opportunity as well. Because again, we want to provide people with an alternative to public transport that isn't the private car with all the other issues that come along with it. Uh, so yes, it, 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 isn't, it isn't easy. Uh, it is definitely not what we want to be doing. Um, but we, we hopefully are moving to more of a place where we can start more of the messaging about those longer term objectives. And that, that's certainly what you'll start to see from the Transport Secretary. We are 
doing a lot of work on um, the transport green recovery. And that, that will tie in with what the Prime Minister is doing in terms of Build Back Better. We've got some very exciting stuff coming along from transport as well that will back up that narrative and messaging. And hopefully, you know, we'll eventually move towards back to sort of more business as usual and trying to decarbonise the whole system and get people back onto public transport. Great. Thanks, Rachel. Laura, did you want to come in as well? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I share share the concern from Rachel and just trying to find the positive in it. The silver lining is that trying to use this moment as other panellists have alluded to already as to really create lasting, lasting change and behavioural change. So from a London perspective, the, the biggest concern is that if people aren't taking the tube or bus, um, are they all going to get in their cars in September or maybe even sooner and we're going to be, you know, air quality is just going to go through, you know, be way worse than it was even prior to, to lockdown. Um, I think, you know, we, we have seen some really positive changes in behaviour, um, not least, you know, just have to go to Evan's bike shop, which I did the other day, got turned away, it was a queue, it was too busy. Uh, clearly the demand is, is, has gone through the roof, which is, which is really great and positive. Um, but also the fact that people are working from home and have proven to their employers that that is feasible and it can work, not in all situations, but where it can, it, it, it could have a very positive impact if um, some employers were to introduce one or two days of working from home that would seriously reduce pressure on the roads and, and commuting. So I think there's, there could be a positive link there to, to air quality. And then secondly, just on, on e-scooters, I mean, I am a huge fan and I genuinely think this is the solution to a lot of the problems because even though now we are seeing people taking up cycling, uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, our local uh, or stats that we had locally was even after seeing some positive introductions of cycling lanes in London, uh, the number of cyclists wasn't actually going up. And I think that comes down to some you know, trivial things like, you know, you'd have to get changed or, you know, you probably work up a sweat or do, does your employer have the facilities for you to have a shower? There's all those things to, to consider. Whereas an e-scooter or an e-bike for that matter, obviously um, sort of get rid of those, those obstacles. Um, so I think that is where you could really trigger modal shift where people would move away from uh, cars or, I guess during the short term public transport into that there are obviously loads of things around that that are problematic so if we don't have the cycling lanes which there are I mean still there's some opposition about and concern around that uh, in my personal view I think lots of the opposition to that is still based on a pre-COVID model and I would like and hope that those assumptions will be changed after all of this but um, if they're not on the roads, they're going to be, where are they going to go? And at the moment, I think Rachel's point is, is, is bang on, is you have to bring the public with you. And locally, residents aren't as enthusiastic as I would like them to be. And um, I think that is because they think it's, they're going to be left on the pavement somewhere or, you know, elderly residents, are they going to be all of a sudden on the pavement is one going to shoot by very quickly. So I think from a local government's perspective, in order to be able to really sell this to our residents, 
um, you have to really give confidence that there is going to be sufficient regulation and also enforcement on, on these issues. And, yeah. um, you know, I would like to see in the long term that they will be sharing cycling lanes or lanes with, with bikes um, in the future. And just um, finally, I think what we've found is, um, especially with sort of more conservative leaning voters, is when, because their big concern with cycling lanes to date has really been that they worry it's going to increase congestion because it's narrowing the roads and it's going to cause more, more traffic jams. That's the number one concern with it. Um, when explaining around COVID how these temporary pop, temporary pop-up lanes can really have a beneficial economic impact on reopening the economy in supporting our local businesses, they are far more understanding and, and very supportive as we have seen with um, our High Street Kensington Road, which pre-COVID-19 probably would never have had the support for that. And people are sort of, I think their, their, their opinions and context and uh, it, it has changed and, and their opinions along alongside it. Thanks so much, Laura. Um, we have another question from Carl Barrow. Um, um, when will we see the policy framework implemented that is required to deliver World Health Organization air quality standards on particulate matter? Okay, I, when will we see the policy framework? I'm, I'm not sure exactly what's meant by that question, but what I can tell you, if it's helpful, is what we are doing in government to meet our legal obligations. So we have in, um, in government, we have a unit called the Joint Air Quality Unit, which sits between my department and DEFRA. DEFRA actually lead on this, but nevertheless, I'm involved in it. Um, and as you know, we have legal obligations to meet um, those clean air and air quality standards, and they're very, very rigorous, and we, we will be taken to court by the likes of Client Earth and others if we don't actually meet them, and if we don't have credible plans to meet them. So um, pre-COVID, there are several large areas in the country who have got quite advanced plans for clean air zones and various other measures to meet those uh, particulate emission standards that they have to meet. <coughs> During the COVID, uh, Birmingham and Manchester are probably the main ones and also Leeds, and Bristol is another one. But as well as that, there's actually quite a lot of smaller areas, uh, for example, Solihull in the West Midlands and, and quite, quite a number of others that have, have got exceedances, which, which is a technical term for when they are not meeting the standards that they need to set out by the WHO. And that's monitored by Highways England uh, and DFT as well. So we, we know where those areas are. Um, and where, when that exceedance happens, what then the JQ will get involved and they will start working with that particular area and they will set out the local area will come up with their own plans and that can involve uh, it can involve a clean air zone where um, a bit like London obviously where, where certain types of vehicles can't travel in but it can also involve other measures uh, such as moving traffic around uh, out of congested areas it can also involve even things like uh, traffic lights sequencing in a slightly different way and, and just removing pinch points off the road network so that actually you, you are addressing it holistically and you're not just simply shifting pollution from one point to the other Unfortunately, due to COVID, a lot of that work had to be paused. Obviously, emissions were down anyway during COVID, but 
also really frankly local authorities just didn't have the resources to do some of this work which is very technical and involves lots of modeling and what we're doing in 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 my department is is basically now picking all that up again and making sure that we are on track to meet these even despite the fact that we've got less social traffic we know that's picking up again and it will pick up again quite quickly and, and that, we can't not have these plans so we, we are going to see the, these coming on stream again they're quite controversial be no surprise to local councillors on the call that um they 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 can they can be sort of challenging politically to navigate the birmingham one in particular is obviously it's sort of close to my own patch so I'm, i know it in detail um and it can cause you know sort of political opposition and lot, lots of different campaigns on the back of it um and, and it can affect lots of different people for example small businesses and we, we have to balance all of these concerns so yeah it's quite tricky it's, it's actually a very tricky and quite technically complex area but um you know i'm more than happy to sort of talk to people in detail about different areas and you know i, I would encourage you actually as local councillors if you've got queries about your own local area what's happening uh, write to me as a minister and we can give you the sort of up-to-date chapter and verse of what's going on in your own area i, I hope that's answered your question I think it was also in relation to the environment bill um, and whether or not um, there's a potential for a stronger target in there for air quality. Okay, I'm going to I am going to basically um, say that I um, I'm afraid I don't actually get involved with the environment bill. <laughs> uh, that's actually a matter for the Defra minister, so I'm not up to speed with all the detail on that one. Please forgive me. Well, we've just come um, to time. So a huge, huge thank you to our excellent panellists. A plug to sign up as a SEND member and SEND councillor if anyone listening uh, hasn't already. Um, and please do join our growing network of eco-Tories who are working on this issue along with many others. Um, thanks so much again, everyone. Speak to you soon.